hello friends. This is long for a minisode and I did my best to cut it down. We recorded more than two hours of audio. So if you want to hear a longer version of this episode with actually whole other lines of argument that we didn't get to in this final cut, you can find that over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP. But otherwise, please enjoy this episode on pastoral resignations. At the top of this episode, I want to say, like, first and foremost, good on Reverend Alexander Lang as he sets boundaries and moves on into something different for him. It sounds like parish ministry was not the the ministry that fed his heart. And I want to be understanding that, like, a lot of people leave ministry for a lot of different feelings. I don't know this man from Adam. And so I'm sure that he is a kind person and had, has done good ministry. But when your salary is actually 127000 a year, I have a lot of thoughts about what you wrote in this post. One, two, five, nine. Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? To pull us back for one second, we are talking about the blog post that has been passed around in a lot of clergy spaces and beyond because I was sent it by a layperson. Uh, the blog post is called Departure, Why I Left the Church. It's from restorativefaith.org, which is an organization that is founded and run by the author of this blog post, Reverend Alexander Lang. And <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in it, he talks about the the sermon he preached at his last Sunday as pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights in Chicago. And he talks about why he's leaving. And I think that's that's what we really need to unpack. A, a lot of the response that I have seen in my like small bubble have been people being really flabbergasted, not at the not at like the fact that he's leaving because we all understand leaving, and not at like any of the the facts about the general life of being a pastor because we all know the reality and how hard it is. But I think we're all flabbergasted at the the whiteness <laughs> and the maleness and just the incredible amount of privilege. I mean, honestly, the richness. Like this man, again, makes six-digit figures and got to go on sabbatical to the UK and like what he says in the article does not completely reflect uh, one with many of our experiences, but two, like the balls on this man to write this post as if he is disclosing something that hasn't been people's lived reality for years. Yeah. Yeah. That last part in particular, I read the whole thing and, and, and I'm just like, buddy, tell me something I don't know. Right. I I actually want to spend some time on this because I think there are people out there who are who are having those kind of gut reactions that we have had at the beginning of this episode. But I actually want to talk through what he what he brings up and kind of go point by point based on like our experience of having talked to a lot of pastors over the past four or five years about right. their their journeys and how difficult it has been and reflecting as somebody who has left ministry and as somebody whose ministry has changed 
changed. Um, you know, none of us, neither of us currently have a book published. Maybe one day that'll change. And um, I mean, we have websites and we have a podcast, but like none of us have the level of success that this man has. So maybe we're doing it wrong. But I think we've heard from a lot of people who are a lot more grounded in um, what's actually happening across Chris and Dunn than this human. So if you're okay, can we go like section by section and kind of reflect as we go? Yeah, sure. So this first... God, uh, he, I, I know that I want, I want to be serious. I want to be serious. It's just that in this first paragraph, he told the congregation he was exhausted from writing, memorizing and preaching sermons week after week for 10 years. And, and then he says he has other reasons, but like, if you are, he, <laughs> He says he has other reasons that he didn't want to discuss in his sermon. And I think that maybe is is my first problem, is that when I said goodbye to my church, when I announced that I was leaving, um, and even like as I prepared them for my leaving, I was pretty honest with my church about why I was leaving. And it's that like, I wasn't a good fit for this situation. Now, like, were there other factors at play? Did I not have the congregational trust that I needed? Was I angry at them? Yeah, all of that is true. But none of that was helpful information for them. But you know, was helpful information for my churches is to know that like, I didn't fit there. And if they were looking to get people like me, then they would need to change who they were and what they were doing, you know, mm-hmm. and you can do that kindly. So I don't know why he chose to talk about preaching and to show this video of his past 10 years at this church, rather than to like, have what I think is a really hard conversation that he wants to bring up in this blog post and maybe he had it with his leadership, but like, I don't understand that. But Ethan, when you were stepping away from pastoral ministry to go to do PhD work, did you, did you tell them that uh, it was just too hard to write sermons week after week? No, because I don't understand what in the world he's talking about. I don't either. (laughs) But like, oh gosh, I'm just exhausted from writing, memorizing, and preaching sermons week after week for 10 years. You know what, Joe? This might be the most telling line of the whole blog post. And it's in the beginning. (laughs) And it's in the beginning. Like, uh, first of all, I mean, he does talk about the other things he has to do in the job uh, in the blog post. But like, this this is what you told the congregation. You apparently, in your final sermon, you are you have informed them that the most exhausting thing you've done for them is writing, memorizing, and preaching sermons. By the way, preaching, something that he admits several times he is both incredibly good at and loves. Right. <laughs> um, and so... Okay. It's so I, tough doing something I enjoy every yeah. week. Hey, buddy, I have an idea. Stop trying to memorize your sermons. Right. That's a real easy way to help. A real easy way to help you is to just write them and preach them. Yeah. This is why I say, this is why I, I, I don't, haven't said this in a while. This is why in the past I've said, hey, man, preaching is just some shit I do on the weekends. It, it's it's really I of course I take it seriously of course I approach it with care it is not it is not that time consuming it's it's the bottom of the list if you are thinking to yourself how do I make this church healthy and the first and only thing you can think of is oh I just got to be a great preacher 
you let me tell you you want to talk about fixed and growth mindsets we are talking about a narcissistic mindset yeah yeah and that really comes through the minute you start thinking about this post it really comes through that there is there is some narcissism and we we don't diagnose anybody but like for sure this person has been thinking a lot about himself and i i agree with you that like what you preach on Sunday is not the most important thing you do during a week, nor is it the way to revitalize your church. It's just the most visible thing that you do. Right. And I like, you know, we've had John Langenstein on a couple of times and like not, I'm not throwing John under the bus here, but John loves to research for his sermons. That's a part of his spiritual journey. That's a part of like what feeds him. And he, I mean, he writes his sermons months in advance and then kind of tweaks them the Sunday before if there's something that needs to happen. But like he spends a lot of time researching and his congregation loves the teaching that he does. And like, that's great. So that's a part that's a much more holistic part of your ministry, right? Sure. It is you being aware of the resources that are available to you. It's you sharing that with your congregation. Like, I think that's fine. And we've had other people on the podcast as well who spend a lot of time on their sermons. And like, I, I think it's fine, but I, I also only think it's fine because I know how much pastoral care work they're also doing. You know, I sure. know that sermon prep is a part of like how they connect to God and we all need those sources. So like, I'm into it. That's fine. And if for, for Alexander over here, if that's how he connects to God is like writing sermons, cool, great. I mean, do that. But it doesn't sound like it is because it would be more sustaining to you if it was. Right. Uh, it's pretty obviously not since he's been exhausted by doing the, a very basic part of the job. Yeah. Also for 10 years, man, buddy, this would be so much, um, you would already have so much more goodwill if you were able to demonstrate that this had anything to do Without effing hard, the pandemic has been. But, yeah. But it's not. I think that's the other. And we're, of course, going to keep working through this. But, like, I think that's the other thing about this whole blog post. It it exists in, in an ahistorical world. Right? Which He's is just, weird. It is weird. He's just sort of naming hard things about church. You know, th this isn't this has nothing to do with the current state. The closest he gets to it is when he tells the story of the Baptist pastor in Trump. Man, as if as if that's like some news to us. Oh man, it's so hard when when some people are liberal and some people are conservative. What do you do? What do you do, friend? We're like this. Yeah. Do you want, what do you want me to feel for you? Have some imagination and some courage. Yeah. So after he he says that he he does this one off line about being exhausted from sermoning, which also one more thing on that. Like, do you not share your pulpit? Like, do you not got to have an associate, Joe? He has to have. And we know later on that he's taken a sabbatical. So we know he gets vacation. So he's not doing it every week. And like, yeah, it's exhausting doing it 50 Sundays out of the year. Like you have to when you're a solo pastor and they don't give you real vacation time. But also like do a fucking hymn sing. You know, like there are many ways if you just don't have it that week to not have to do it that week. You're right. Ooh, okay. So. The Great Pastor Resignation is his first chunk of uh, uh, 
evidence, I guess, that he cites to explain why it's okay for him to leave. And he does say that came in the wake of the pandemic, which is true. I mean, a lot of people didn't make it through ministry. I didn't make it through ministry at that time. A lot of people retired. As of March 22, 42% of pastors considered quitting. And the reasons for it, this is this is cute to me. 42% of pastors considered quitting, but whoever this group is didn't study people who had quit. So like, do you know? what's happening. But then the things that are on the list are the stress of the job, feeling lonely and isolated. Current political divisions is on there. And I, I mean, I, we can talk about that. I'm unhappy with the effect this role has had on my family. I'm not optimistic about the future of the church. Like at least four of those are things that like millennial pastors know in seminary, we're warned about in seminary, we're told to plan for in seminary. The The future of the church isn't looking great unless we make big changes. The job has a lot of impact on, on people's lives and on their family lives. Like we know this stress unless you set up good boundaries. So we talk a lot about boundaries. I feel lonely and isolated. Absolutely. It's an isolating job. That's why you build community, which we're told to do over and over again. And then the stress of the job, I mean, the stress the job is the stress of the job i don't know what i don't know what to tell anybody about that i don't know why it's 56 percent instead of 100 percent. you know like the stress right. of the job is too much but like that you know that going in so you set up ways to help you do the work and i this is not victim blaming because i as somebody who set up a lot of ways to do the work and do the work well and had tons of support and did like the best that i could also still left so like sometimes all of your support systems don't cut it but I, I'm frustrated by this list because it's so early. You'd think it's part of his thesis, and it's all stuff we know. Right, exactly. I don't even have any comments for this. I, I find this beginning part to be such a nothing burger because he uses it to frame uh, what is truly an absolutely banana statistic about his own church. So shortly, so in the same section of, of the, the, the great uh, pastor resignation, you know, he starts talking about the Presbyterian church that he served. Before he starts talking about that, he says, uh, 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 as a pastor, you're there for all of the peaks and valleys. You're there to celebrate the weddings and the birds. You're also there for the sicknesses, tragedies, and deaths. I don't think anyone becomes a pastor not knowing this is what you're signing up for. However, the reality of what this does to you mentally and emotionally is taxing over the long haul. Yeah, yeah sure. As an example, let me give you an example of a time when it was emotionally taxing. At First Pres, we have a thousand members. Yes, yeah, so far, this is really sounding taxing on you. Of those thousand, only about 500 come to church. And I really only know about 300 of them. Uh-huh. What this means is I know their stories, their history, their intimate details of their lives. Sometimes this happens because they were in crisis. Sometimes I learned these things while performing functions for them. Sometimes this happens because we became friends. And I'm, and the only thing I get from that is, you have 500 people on a Sunday? I know. Buddy, what are you complaining about? Yeah. Is, is, is the complaint like you just don't know the mental and emotional taxing, how taxing it be over the long haul? For example, I have 500 people that I have to get to know and perform pastoral functions for. It's exhausting. You know what I mean? No, I have no idea what you mean, buddy. Yeah, like actually 
truly. I um I I I'm very frustrated by that. So I have actually pulled up this church's website. Um it's got an inter- interim senior pastor, they have a music and worship pastor, they have an organist, uh they have a lot of music people. They have a children's minister, a youth minister, well, a children's and youth minister. Um, a director of parents day out, which sounds real fun, uh, nursery office, administrator, administrative assistant, receptionist. So they really don't have an associate, but like, why don't you have an associate? You have a thousand people on your roles that like you, you should have hired. I don't want to should anybody's lives, but I fully don't understand how somebody who is launching his own book doesn't first spend the time to care for his congregation by hiring an associate or like taking, taking care of the, the, or using your apparently board of deacons that they have in in the Presbyterian church. Like you have people in who are here to do a lot of your, I am seeing communion prep, homebound outreach, congregational care, which is what he's talking about here. All sorts of things that like you, you have support, my dude, like, and you are part of the Presbyterian church. If you need somebody to step in, you have resources. You should not as a pastor of any size church, be the only person spiritually caring for your members of your church. I believe that very firmly. Not only do they need to take responsibility for their own spiritual journeys, but you should have leaders in the congregation who can help you out with these things. I had a church where we had 30 people in church on Sunday, and I had multiple members of my congregation who were great at congregational care, who sent cards, who called, who checked in, who sat with people, you should be empowering people to do that this man should not be walking around with hundreds of people's stories in his head one (laughs) that's what he says you gotta process that shit and you gotta lay it down like there's there's no way one you shouldn't even have that opportunity in the first place and two no let go (laughs) i agree i agree just just to speak on your that last comment This little tiny paragraph where he talks about that, what you don't realize is that over time, the culmination of all that knowledge starts to weigh you down. Your mind is a repository of all sorts of secrets. And if you're human, you feel sympathy and empathy for their suffering. Therefore, beyond just keeping track of all that information, you're aware of the deep hardships and challenges that your congregants cope with day to day. So there's 500 people on a Sunday. You know 300 of them. And, and for all 300 of those people, every single one of you has, has weighed you, your mind down with their stories, their hardships, their tragedies. And it has caused what? Your, your, your ram to get too much? Your memory's not enough? I don't even, I can't comprehend what this guy is trying to tell me. Just yeah. don't remember it. <laughs> Or write it down, write it down so it's stored somewhere else. Yeah, that's kind of what I mean. Like, like, uh, are you suggesting that on a pretty regular basis, 300 people are calling you with tragedies? Like that just cannot be. I just, exactly. I just don't get it. Like, like, of course, when I served Kerwinsville for over those three years, I got to know a lot of people and I got to know a lot of what they were thinking and how they were. And I listened when bad things were happening. 
and I and I sympathize and I empathize and I held people's hands and I talked them through it and then I hugged them and prayed with them and then I went fucking home. Yeah. You know? Because it's what you gotta do. <laughs> it, but exactly. And that's I I don't get it. I don't understand. And and not only do I not understand, I don't believe it. Yeah. I just don't believe it. I don't buy that this is a real reason. Oh, you guys don't get it. Oh, 500 super wealthy Chicagoans <laughs> come come to me and 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 need me to be their spiritual rock. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting being everyone's messiah. What are you talking about, buddy? Yeah, I think you hit on it really well. Also, sorry, I scrolled down to the bottom of their page and they have a Stephen ministry at their church. They have people who can visit people. <laughs> like if I, I, we are so critical of this human and I understand it. And like, thank you for naming the, the wealth assumptions that we have going forward with this. But, but honest to God, if you were doing all of this work, you would have noticed within a year that you were doing way too much. You know, you would have noticed within a year that you were carrying way too much and you would have had to find strategies in order to help with this burden, not burden, in order that you might be able to care effectively for the people who are in your care. You know, you do this by encouraging others to take part of that load because the pastor cannot do it all. There, there are so many strategies for caring for a church this big. Now, like to me, this church is too big for one pastor to care for. You do need other staff. You need to be empowering people to care for one another because every human has their limits. Every human can only care for so many people at a time. That's just a fact of, of our existence. And if, if he's being pressured to care for 300 people as if they are close friends to him, that's too much. And he should have set that boundary. Again, I don't mean to say should, but like you, you don't make it 10 years caring for that many people as intensely as he seems to say that he's caring for people. And if he is overstating the amount of work he's doing and caring for his congregation, I am angry <laughs> at him because it is real work. It takes up a lot of energy. It disrupts your life. I completely understand all of that, but there's no way that you are doing this on the scale that he says that he's doing this. He is maybe touching the lives of 20 people in a week. There's no way. There's no way he's writing a book and also caring for this congregation at the level that he says that he is. I, I agree. I agree. <sighs> a thousand bosses. I only have two comments on the a thousand bosses thing. One, uh, no. Yeah. They're not all your boss. You don't have to lie. You need to know that. Yeah. Like I, he definitely knows that he's been there 10 years. This is a lie. This is, this is the part in which he is outright lying. And I'm prepared to admit it. He, he is lying. There, there, hey, there might be some weirdos that think that they're your boss. Like I've encountered that. You do not have a thousand bosses. No. And if you insist on, if, if your people insist on that, then you've got to shut that shit down real quick. And if you can't, then you don't stick around for 10 years. Yeah. You know, so, so that's one comment. And then the second comment 
in my previous congregation, a member. So this is this is this, the previous congregation. Um, so this is not the Presbyterian Church. In my previous congregation, a member who was a former state senator for Pennsylvania refused to volunteer for our boards because he felt the church boards were too cutthroat. I found that to be incredible. This man worked at the highest levels of state government and felt politics were less toxic than volunteering for a leadership role on the board of his local church. Hey, buddy, you're the pastor. Fix it. Yeah. Yeah, if somebody who has been in state-level politics, which can be just a whole other bear than national politics, if somebody who knows how to navigate that doesn't want to navigate your church, you have an unhealthy church, and it is your job to fix it. You're exactly right. Right, right. Also, that's only if that story is true. Sure. Because because the more the more we dive into this, the more I'm like, I don't think I don't think a lot of this is true, particularly in the normative way he's describing this stuff. Right. Right. However, in practice, your boss is every person who walks through the door of your community. No. 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 That is not only is that the wrong mindset. That is not even how it works in practice either. Correct. There are, by, I am certain, there are guests in your sanctuary who you never see face to face. They they have no control over you. They're in and out and in a Sunday. They maybe don't even last the entire service, but they walk through your door. They're not your boss. No, not at all. None of these people are your boss. Will they pay my salary? Yeah, they do. They pay your enormous salary and let you go on sabbatical and let you do all this stuff. Haven't you ever noticed that when pastors elite, when pastors at this level, when pastors with this kind of prestige and this kind of thing, when they leave the ministry, they don't become electricians. Right. But instead <laughs> just continue to grift. Yeah. And, and continue to just do what they've always done, only divorce from any sort of accountability in a church. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That seems strange. It's almost like you're not interested in leaving ministry. You're just interested in getting away from an institutional church so that you can just make money doing the things you did at your church without having to be responsible. Yeah. Since we're here, I'm going to skip to my point that was going to happen at the end. Um, Because in the last paragraph before he had writes a poem for us he plugs his new book restorative beauty uh, which i hope will be ready for publication by the end of the year and throughout this he's talked about writing a book uh restorative faith which is the website that this is posted on right and he he's not sure about what he plans to do next but he says more on that in future articles and like if i hadn't already kind of gotten the grift feel which looks to be real i had from like the moment i clicked on it but like Reading through all this, I get to the end of this and I hear that like there's a short film that he's created. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, he's got a he's got a podcast, he's got his book, he's got this short film, he's got a new book coming out, and he wants us to like stay tuned for what's ahead. You are out here to grift. You were not ever in this for your congregation, because you know what we don't see a lot of in this post? Care for the people in his congregation. When I left ministry, I was falling over myself to talk about how much I like cared for and loved these people, how I was there for them and how like, even though it was an unhealthy situation and like, I did not need to be there anymore. I spent so much time preparing them so that they would have success with another pastor. 
I what what really frustrates me about this is it's about his time at this church. It's about his ministry, his what the next steps are for him. It there is no um worry or concern for the 500 people on Sunday, a thousand people on the rolls that he's leaving. You know, there's, Mm -hmm. there's no wish for the next pastor that like things may go well, or a, you know, I'm so glad that this interim was able to come in as they find who they want in the next season. None of that's here. And like, it's probably in a sermon because those are all things that you have to say, but like none of that is here. And to that, that to me means that like, oh, you were in it so that you got to write weekly and do a performance every week to launch your book and your successful career outside of the church. You, you were never here to make disciples. You were here to get customers. Exactly. The... Again, we don't know this person, so we could be completely wrong. But boy, if we're wrong, then he needs to think about how he's presenting himself, because all of that is available to read. And just this text. The other thing about the a thousand bosses is one, you surely do not have a thousand bosses because you just told us you only have 500 in church on Sunday. And we all know that all of those 500 are not active. So like, really, you maybe have 300 bosses. That's what I'm hearing from your pastoral care section. But no, there's a session of 21 people and that's who you are accountable to that's that's who your boss is and the first thing you learn as a pastor is to figure out who to listen to and who to not listen to so like my dude pull up some Brene Brown figure out how to say no to people and who to listen to that's what you have to do in order to survive so that um And then he says, I've been a target of mudslinging. Uh, There was this underground movement trying to kick me out. And like, one, come back to me when you have been threatened by a stranger in a pickup truck in the middle of the night when you're alone at the church. Uh, And come back to me when you've been screamed at in the middle of a sermon and physically threatened. Come back to me when like you have had cigarettes uh, flicked at you in the course of doing your duty before you can... (laughs) talk about mudslinging and then the man has the audacity to put in a picture of a heretic being burned on the pyre to demonstrate this section i never ever even when there literally was a movement to encourage me to leave my church would have used something like this because i didn't think i was being a martyr yeah also um hey bud listen I, we've all, it's not fun when people don't like you, but generally it's not really a movement to destroy your career. And at the end of that section, he says, is leading the church really worth the investment if this is what I'm going to get in return? I hear that. I definitely felt that as I was leaving ministry, but that I mean, that's that is the real calculus when deciding whether to leave ministry or not. It is do does do the good things that I get out of this are they able to sustain me through the bad things that I'm having to endure in this and for me like at the end of the day it's a level of trust right like I did not trust that congregation because they did not trust me anymore um we had we had both exhausted our stores of trust for each other I did not trust the conference to appoint me to a place that would be good for me because they hadn't and because I've talked to other pastors and I know how it goes and I didn't trust the denomination as a whole because i've seen what the denomination does to queer people right so all of those 
aspects are what goes into when you think about leaving, right? It's, is this sustainable for me? And, and I think when you're asking the question, um, in 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 financial terms in terms of investment and return then i think you've misunderstood the question right mm-hmm. like that's mm-hmm. that's not a healthy way to view ministry that is how grifters view what they're doing but it's not it is not the way that i would view ministry and i think that comes back with the growth mindset stuff that is so like books on how to be an entrepreneur, you know, like they talk about that all the time. And I, like, I understand why you would use that terminology. But to me, it's so much in that like, self starter, again, grifter territory that like my eyebrows go up. I I, I must agree with you. Whew. Your your analysis of like the con- you you translate his metaphor into a much more sound and correct metaphor. And then, and then you definitely pointed out to us that he's using an economic metaphor here. Mm-hmm. He's using a capitalist metaphor to describe ministry. Is 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 what I'm doing really worth the investment? Yeah, man. Uh, the answer is always no. Yeah, there's nothing how, in the church that's worth your investment. <laughs> like, how did it take you ten years at this church and other years at previous churches? For you to realize that, like, that isn't how any of this works. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Unrealistic expectations. This is where we got the um, 55000 for his salary. Yep. Which... Which is funny. So he just does the basic math that we that anybody who's been to seminary knows and that anybody who loves somebody who has been to seminary knows, which is that you have been in seminary for at least three years for for us to get an MDiv. And that requires that four years of undergrad. So you have done an extra schooling for seven years to be able to get through this. There are ordination exams. And boy, have we talked about ordination exams. And then you come out on the other side. And for him, the the average salary for for a PCUSA pastor is 55K, and which he says is barely enough to live on and not nearly enough to pay back your student loans. And like, it's not enough. I like fully agree. At the same time, if I was making 55K right now, my life would be a lot different. Oh, same here. Same here. If I if I was making $55,000 a year right now, so many, so many better things would be happening. Yeah. You're right. Like this part is a pain in the ass to me. And it is onerous now and it is unjust now. So like rather than throwing up the statistic, can you talk to me about how you thought creatively about what the ordination process might look like differently? What education might look like in a more just world? Like, I mean, how much have we talked about that on this podcast? How often have we talked and dreamed about like what a different world would look like? And that's... That's that is maybe an unfair expectation for me to put on this on this blog post. But like, I want to see evidence that you have done that work. Otherwise, like what I hear from you is you are bitching about a situation that actually doesn't apply to you. So you can garner some sympathy. And I, I, I'm just not very sympathetic. I think this is where I've reached the part of the post that I'm not sympathetic because like you go through the rest of the expectations and it's that you are a professional speaker. Cool. Whatever. He says he likes this. So like, whatever. Uh, you're required to be a CEO of a company. We've talked about that and that weird dissonance, but like that's a part of the job. Uh, right. You have to be a professional fundraiser. Okay, I understand it, but like 
you could have hired somebody else and taken a cut from your salary if you didn't want this on your plate, you know? Mm -hmm. uh you are acting as a human resource director well no my dude that should be the session like i don't understand why that's on your plate so i have some questions and that gets two sentences before he jumps to master of ceremonies at baptisms weddings and funerals is that what you do at a baptism is that what you do at a wedding is that are you an mc at a funeral no so here's my other theory. Here's my other theory about all of this. I think that there's a chance that he that that this blog post, I haven't read other blog posts. I'm not interested in looking at anything he's doing. There's a chance that this blog post is a test to see if he can couch everything in economic and secular language. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's part of the grift, right? Like, I don't think this blog post is meant to be given to pastors. Correct. Because he wouldn't be explaining what it is to do to to work as a pastor if he was giving it to pastors, because we can all see that that's not what's happening. Right, right. I think that's that also explains the pictures, right? Yes. Like, uh, and why. So like the burning at the burning, the heretic and stuff like I think it's meant I think it's meant to get around to uh, people who um, only have a cursory interest in church, right? Can I tell you something that's going to drive you nuts? Of course. So, I, you know, this website is restoredfaith.org. I click on the movement section because it says movement, and I'm curious because I wanted to see, like, what else he did. The restorative faith movement is a coalition of people who are working together to create a new kind of Christianity for the 21st century. Those who join this movement usually possess these three attributes. A rationalist worldview where scientific discovery and logic are the primary drivers of truth. What? I know. I knew it would get you. I would get you. Uh, so let me read the the last two, and then you can feel all your feelings and and give me all of your arguments. So the second one is a belief that there is something greater than ourselves that is the cause of the universe in which we live. This cause is often defined as, but not necessarily exclusive to, a divine being or God. And three, a belief that Jesus of Nazareth possesses unique insight into this cause and provides a positive framework through which humans can improve themselves, both individually and as a society, to become more egalitarian and peaceful with one another. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's get this. I'm glad this guy's gone. <laughs> I'm glad this guy's gone. I, you're some of the least thoughtful, not just white, but like that, that just awful enlightenment Western bullshit. Yes that I've ever like, my God, you just named it. Didn't you? You're using, I hate Joe. I hate it when people use words uncarefully. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Science and logic as the primary driver of truth. Yeah. He needs to define everything in that sentence. Yeah. What, what, what do you mean by truth? At truth now, <laughs> science, right. science and logic can tell us truth. Like, what's the meaning of all this? Or do I love my wife? Like, like are those <laughs> are those two questions that science and logic can reveal the truth over? 
what does this text, what does this poem I wrote mean? Like, like no, yeah. no, you giant idiot. And you went to seminary? Right. I mean, this is just deism, right? Like deism yeah. a little bit more repackaged and less thoughtful. But but it's weird that it's a rationalist worldview and a belief that there's something greater than ourselves. For many people, those two things are mutually exclusive, you know? Right. <sighs> I, I just, oh, and the idea and the, the, the notion that Jesus can be a positive framework for peace. He can't. Yeah. He can't. He can't. Jesus of Nazareth is incredibly bad at creating um, um, egalitarian liberal democracies. He's very bad at it. Like, like he doesn't do it. He's not interested in it. And your attempt to make him interested in it is not very good. I'm not saying that people can't or shouldn't try to make egalitarian liberal democracies. I think that's probably really neat. What I'm saying is, is that Jesus does not help us do that very well. No, no. Jesus is primary interest, primarily interested in, say, defeating the powers of sin and death <laughs> and other stuff like that. Or maybe more interested in, like, rebelling against Rome. You know, like, if you're going to go historic and rational and logical <laughs> by whatever Ooh. definition you think those words mean, I, I still think you've misunderstood Jesus. But, yeah, no. And the other thing is that if you're serious about following the framework that Jesus presents, my dude, you would not be making the amount of money that you're making in a year. Like, you would not have written this blog post if you were serious about following the framework that Jesus has left for us. Because, like, you would be out here um giving up your life for your friends you know like jesus doesn't tell us to set good boundaries and like in that case other than the sabbath which apparently you have no access to because things happen on weekends and you have to be the mc at every event but like it, that that's a great line you're right i just read that line too it's like beyond all these day-to-day tasks you serve as master of ceremonies at baptisms weddings and funerals which means you rarely get a break as these events often happen on the weekends yeah yeah uh friend i don't know how to help you take mondays off yeah like do what literally all <laughs> every pastor that i talk to does and like plan a sabbath day usually it's monday because that's a slow church day i mean my god my dad was a golf pro he had to work all weekend mondays were his days off it's doable and you don't even have to blanket it with sabbath language just take a fucking day off on a day that you're not expected to work <laughs> like, i and you know the other piece of of that that gets me in this section is that as master of ceremonies he says that people look to you as the keeper of the bible and the guardian of orthodoxy so they ask you to correctly interpret the bible for them um and no <laughs> no no, they're they're largely uninterested. Even but but even even setting that aside, like even the people who are interested in in understanding the Bible, in understanding the tradition that is passed down to them, and kind of the most generous read of Bible and Orthodoxy, those people are not looking for you to interpret the Bible in a unique and life empowering way at a baptism, wedding, and funeral. That is not exactly. what those that's not what those services are for. You know, those services are for you to be giving pastoral care that you're apparently doing all of the time to the point that your head isn't free. I 
Right, right. Well, maybe he doesn't know how to do it because his mind is so weighed down by the years and years of stories and 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 tragedies. We've picked on so much in this, and, and we'll continue to because I, at this point, this is this is where we're at with him. But you know, there are plenty of people out there who are serving in churches who have a lot of different ways of thinking about who Jesus is to them and how Jesus lives in the world, and like they, there's deep theological work happening for a lot of good people. But this, to me, does not reflect like deep theological work. This, to me, reflects wording that's going to catch um, keywords in Google. So there's that. And then the last thing he says in the section is that uh, you have to be a pillar of virtue. And we have talked a ton on the podcast about this. Like this is actually one of my like one of my hobby horses when it comes to being a pastor is that like they expect you to be closer to God than they are. And they expect you to be holier than they are in the way of like living in polite society. Mm. And we have spent a lot of time undoing that expectation. And if you're in a church for 10 years, I think you should have been doing a lot of time undoing that expectation that you are a pillar of virtue and can be depended on to be the virtuous one for your whole congregation. Because you know, you know who was the virtuous one? For us all, was Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's true. You could just. You know what they him. did to Jesus? <laughs> they, they killed him. <laughs> and and you know I don't I don't fully understand very well, and this is more of a me thing. I don't understand when people when pastors complain about the um, nonprofit side of what we do. Yeah. Um, I actually love that stuff. That's the thing that I miss about working part-time at the church is that I don't really get to do that stuff. I don't really spend time in meeting. I spend, I do do some meetings, but I don't really spend time in a lot of meetings. I don't spend time in a lot of one-on-one or group settings to talk through resources and visioning and strategies. I, I love that kind of stuff. That that's, that's like, the job that's like the job aspect of what we do that's how we earn our full-time salary right and so for him to kind of complain about it is a little weird to me because like i understand that some of our colleagues complain about it mostly because maybe that's just not what they're really great at and that's okay like Mm -hmm. that's why that's why in the methodist church we have different committees and we can nominate certain people to kind of get through and help us with that. I think that's all fine. Or like the fundraiser element. Do you really want to be a fundraiser? Hey, man, I don't know how to help you see that what you're that that every nonprofit is always also a fundraising machine. Cause it's gotta be. Cause it's gotta be. And and so if you're like, what are you what do you want to see happen? Again, yeah, there's a lack of imagination. Well, well, right, right. And this is why I always, this is why I I pointed out at the beginning, this guy didn't leave the ministry to go become the night manager at Wegmans. He didn't leave the ministry and and pivot into the private sector uh, and the secular private sector where he doesn't have to worry about fundraising because he's producing a product that people will buy. 
or he doesn't have to worry about being a human resource director anymore because he's got one very narrow job. He doesn't have to worry about being a map. By the way, why does he not like being a master of ceremonies? I thought he really likes the attention. He made that quite clear at the beginning. Sure. You know, and, and he's, he's not moving into an area where he doesn't have to be a pillar of virtue. So I have to believe that he actually likes all of these things. The thing that he doesn't like is the fact that he's uh, he has to do them not on his own time. Yeah. That yeah. that that he's actually um, isn't that what that's like the inherent tension, I think, in pastors who are narcissists. Obviously, nar- narcissism runs rampant in clergy spaces. It, it's a it's a strong attractor of clergy. Yeah. But, but I think a lot of pastors who struggle with narcissism. Uh, are are of mixed minds about the job because on one hand, man, it gives us a lot of opportunity to to feed the narcissist that's in us, and on the other hand, absolutely zero percent of what we do is about us. Correct. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, if a church, God forbid, insists on making sure that the gospel and the health of the church are at the center, that narcissistic pastor will almost certainly leave. But you know what I mean? Like, like so the fact that this guy made it 10 years is bananas to me because he's very clearly a narcissist. And he also, like, uh, once again, he's got to do all of these things anyway. Yeah. Now, now that he's running restorative faith and he's trying to create a new enlightenment and, and all this bullshit. Yeah, yeah. I to be to be fair to like what is surface level of the text. He doesn't say that he doesn't enjoy these things. He is just saying that like this is a lot to put on one person. And like I fully agree with that. That might be why First Presbyterian hired Debbie and Mary and Carol and Tony and Michelle to help you manage your budget, manage the business of the church to be your administrative assistant and receptionist, to manage the facilities and to manage those who want to rent your facilities. You know, like those are whole streams of income that other people are taking care of. That isn't you. I, I, this whole list really frustrates me because one, again, as we've been saying, there should be an associate. So one that takes the pressure off of some of that speaking, those speaking gigs, and that takes some of the pressure off of some of those ceremonies that you don't want to be at, I guess. Um, Two, being a CEO of a nonprofit is part of the job. That's why you have a 21 member session and deacons and all of these staff members whose name I just read, who also can help you with fundraising. And again, you should not be the human resources director. That's not fair. That's what the session's for. The master of ceremonies thing is weird. It's very interesting to me that none of what, well, he does say counselor in here, but none of that actually like really encompasses being a a theologian and helping people through crises of faith. And then the pillar of virtue thing is an expectation that you would put on yourself and that you need to learn how to free yourself from. So Right. Yeah. That in particular, that last part, like, cause then I think that's the other piece, like the way he describes it. Finally, you're expected to be a pillar of virtue. And what does he mean by that? Meaning you must be blameless or morally pure and your spouse, your children should all be perfect or close to it. 
most importantly, you must be unconditionally loving, meaning you have to love everyone in your congregation and show them grace and forgiveness no matter how poorly they treat you. That's not true. Let, let's let's wait for that. Let Before I attack that last part, that first two lines, you must be blameless and morally pure. Your spouse, your children should all be perfect and close to it. I have done ministry for about, I've done some form of pastoral ministry for about 10 years now. I'm not saying that churches don't, some churches or some congregants don't expect that. You have the power to break that. Yes. And you have to. And Actually, I think that's a moral that. imperative. Yeah. You, you must break that. Second, uh, Secondly, about those first two lines, what exactly do you mean? Correct. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure what that means. Let's talk about the, 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 the second part then. You have just described Christian forgiveness, brother. <laughs> he has. <laughs> now, 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 I know, I think I know what he's trying to say. I think I know what he's trying to say. I think he's trying to say I shouldn't have to be a doormat when people abuse me, to which I go, of course not. Of course right. you don't have to be a doormat for when people abuse you. But that's not what you're describing. You're saying that, and then there's this there's this expectation that I'm supposed to be unconditionally loving and show people grace and forgiveness, even if they may, are mean to me. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yeah, man, that's right. You, you've just described it. Not being a pastor, you've just described the whole- Being a Christian. Being a Christian thing. Like, like is that your issue? That can't be your issue, man. And the other side of this is that you, how how have you been a pastor for 10 years and not deconstructed your understanding of what forgiveness actually means and right. grace actually means, right? Like, do you, as a pastor, do you kind of give up your right to blow your stack at somebody? I, I mean, a little bit. Like, you are a leader and there are many situations in which leadership looks like keeping that emotion to yourself until you're in another setting because that person needs you to be the leader, you know? I Like, I understand that. There's many ways that we maneuver these kind of things. But but it is completely true that if somebody is, is unkind to you, if somebody has it out for you, if somebody yells at you in the middle of your sermon, and, and, you know, like physically threatens you, then like, it's okay to set a boundary with that person. And, um, well, yeah. and say, I, I, you know, I, I love you. You are a beloved child of God. And right now my love looks like taking care of myself right now, because otherwise this is just going to, to escalate into something that we don't want it to be. I mean, and, and churches are historically really terrible at that, but name that, you know, name the reality that we are bad at understanding that forgiveness is separate from acts of repentance and that acts of repentance are what heal relationships. If that's possible, you know, we really, really have to be careful and thoughtful about this. And I don't understand how this human has this huge congregation and has had it for 10 years and has not ever had to think critically about what forgiveness actually is and what restoring relationship actually is. And I think it's, you're right. And I think it's once again, because this is not for pastors or even for terribly Christian people. Yeah. This is meant to be for people who are sympathetic and on the outside. You know, also, you just said when you become a pastor, do you sort of give up your right to blow your stack on someone? Yeah. 
Yeah, you do. When you become the night manager at the local food line, you also give up the right to blow your stack on someone. You know, that's true. Very unprofessional, you know? Just very unprofessional. Like, we don't do stuff like that. I, I don't know how else to put it. Yes. Yes. All of these things are right. You cannot look at a mean congregate and say, fuck off. Like, you can't do that. No matter how much you might want to, you can't. Is that why you're leaving? But, like, I don't get it. I don't understand. They, man, they expect me to treat people with grace. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. that Was that not on the list of frameworks that Jesus provides to create a more egalitarian and peaceful society? <laughs> was that not part of your clergy vows? I don't I, know. I don't get it. Okay. Are we good to move to unseen yes. damage? Yes. We're so close unseen. to the end listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Emotional damage. So, so he, I'm never going to listen to this New York Times podcast with a Baptist pastor from New York. I understand that it was difficult, is difficult, given the current political climate. We talk about this all the time. But you know what, we've been in this political climate for a while now. And I think it's time to stop using that as an excuse, you know, figure out how you do your work in all this, because we've had long enough to figure out how to do our work. For some of us, it's avoiding the issues because we know that like, we're if we push them, we cannot do any good work. For some people, it's strategically knowing where you can push and when you can push. And like, yeah, it's frustrating. But like, if you want to do this job, figure out how to do it in this thing. So there's that. But then I think, so he talks about how this guy has PTSD. Cool. That sounds right to me. And then he talks about, the podcast talks about how this guy that the podcast is about lost 180 different relationships due to death or people leaving the church and he didn't have time to grieve. And I understand that. You know, I understand people leaving. I understand the hurt of all of that. I understand people being angry at you. And I understand like the loss of safety that you feel. I understand all of these things. Um, and the the thing you have got to do is process it. And my God, it is 2023. The resources are available. You know, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. this is another time where I'm like, you are not new to this conversation. This is not novel. These are things that I was talking about back in 2016. So I, I don't know why you're presenting it here as if it is completely new information. And then he drops this sentence, uh, which I lost me. Um, When I heard this podcast, I was on sabbatical over in England in 2022. I was in the middle of trying to discern if I wanted to stay at my post or leave the pastor altogether. And then he says some other stuff. He says, as a pastor, I felt like a punching bag. And no matter how much abuse was thrown my way, I simply had to grin and bear it. Dan left the church and said it was the best decision he ever made. And so I'm assuming that he is going to say that leaving the church is the best decision that he ever made at some point. But my dude, you were on sabbatical in England. (laughs) Right, right. Let me talk about how often I had to plan my whole life around being having my ass back on Sunday in the pulpit because I did not have vacation. All I had was moving my plans and my life around to be able to care for my congregation. I had two Sundays off. I don't understand why if you have the ability to take a sabbatical, you did not work on any of the problems that you have 
already pointed out in this too long blog post. You're right. So this is why this this paragraph that you read um, is another, I think, clue as to large things that we are that that he is purposefully keeping obscure. Yeah. Abuse. For yeah. What does ten, that mean? For ten years, exactly. For ten years, you have been a punching bag who has suffered abuse. Okay, what does that look like? Well, if we take the blog post as an indication, looks like that once upon a time in those 10 years, an underground movement attempted to destroy his career using something that we didn't, he did not explain. But at one point, they sent out a mass email with something. What's going on, brother? Like, what's happening? Is it that you are being deceitful? Yeah, because something just isn't, isn't lining up. That's what I have to ask. How is it possible that this, for all we know, he could have been doing this for 20 years, right? He's only been at this church for 10 years. We know he had another church. How is it possible that a that a seminary trained, more experienced than we have, older white male pastor who makes $127,000 at a wealthy, probably moderate to liberal Presbyterian church in Chicago. How is it possible that all of this is like gotten away from him? That he has no control over his schedule. He has no control over what he can do. He has no control over how the congregation thinks of him and what they expect of him. He has no control over suffering the abuse that he takes how is that possible it's it, and it just seems to me that that by that logic that that there is something else going on that we don't know about and and that and here's the other piece and i think we don't need to cover the rest of the articles because i think we've talked about these last two sections pretty well but um the the piece that makes me think that he is writing this in order to continue with the restorative faith aspect of this uh in addition to the fact that he's trashing you know the way that we care for one another as christians and what like forgiveness and grace might look like for uh christians who are actually trying to practice the faith um the thing that that really got me is his last paragraph before the final service so the last paragraph in the fixed growth fixed versus growth mindset section um Actually, let me back up. He says in that fixed versus growth mindset section that most Christians don't want their thinking challenged, which is something that somebody who does not know Christians thinks, you know, that's something Uh that somebody who would want to come to restore to faith for information thinks about Christians. They don't want to learn anything. They don't want to know anything new. They just want the church to reinforce what they've known all of their lives. And that's simply not true about every Christian. And while there are many Christians out there that think that way, that's an incredibly ungenerous read to the people that you have served and who have paid your exorbitant salary for 10 years. So I'm frustrated about that. But then the last paragraph, he says, well, he says that that not wanting their thinking challenge is the exact opposite of how he functions. He wants to be challenged, which is ironic. Um, this is that's complete garbage. That right. that's the lie. <laughs> that's the lie right there. I want my thinking challenged. I'm not like those people. I'm a growth mindset person. Yeah. Oh, okay, buddy. <laughs> sure. 
So his last paragraph is, I eventually came to the conclusion that my particular skill set and perspective is a mismatch for the institutional church. What I offer is not what most Christians are looking for, which is another reason I've decided to move on. I realized that if I spent the rest of my life fighting a system that is not designed for someone like me, I'm going to end up angry, bitter, an angry, bitter, broken shell of a human being. Now, what makes me the most angry is that these are words that I have used. And you know why I use these words? Because I'm a queer woman in the United Methodist Church. That system is not designed for me. But this man, the Presbyterian Church is designed for this man. In fact, there are many congregations who would be happy to have a man like him in the pulpit. And it sounds like his church is successful and doing just fine. So it is not that the system isn't designed for him. It is that, my dude, you don't want to be a Christian. You do not want to participate in the church. You do not want to be a follower of Christ. You do not want to be part of the body of Christ. You want to profit off of the work that Christianity has, the good work that we have done to the extent that we have done good work in the world. And you want to profit off of the bad press that we have. That's not fair. And that... To put me in the same category as this person writing this post makes me want to tear my hair out. I left the church because the church was not designed for me. And I think I'm absolutely right in saying that. But like, I didn't leave the church because I thought that Christianity believed too hard in God. You know, I actually left because I think we don't necessarily believe in God to the extent that we need to. And I'm real fucking angry that he's trying to set himself up on a pedestal that he has no right even looking at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think all of that is right. You, I think you're exactly right to be angry and offended by the language he uses here. And I think that your analysis that boy, this guy's just not terribly interested in being a Christian. He's primarily interested in profiting off of Christians, I think is exactly right. And then in the paragraph under that, there are three backlinks. He links to a person who came to his church after listening to his podcast and reading his book. And there is a reflection on the service that you can go out and read by somebody who is like bought into the restorative faith thing. And I am so pissed. And then he says, for all the adversity I faced during my time at First Pres, I felt very loved on that last Sunday. It was the perfect ending to my career in the pastorate. What are you leaving over? You know, that that, that is my, out of all of the things that we've said about this piece and all of the ways in which he's a grifter, say what's actually happening. If you are leaving your church because people actually forced you out, then like wait till the NDA is over and then talk Talk about how people force you out. If you are leaving your church because there's disagreements between you and the vestry, talk about those disagreements. If you are leaving your church because you really fucked up, then get out of my face. You know, like if this is your fault, if you made a huge mistake and you're trying to cover it up, which is what this is starting to sound like, then you do not deserve to continue to have the presence that you have in the world. Uh, wow, that's like, I will kill you. <laughs> I'm, I'm so that's, close to it. I, that's a kind of, that's a, <gasps> you do not deserve to be present in this world. 
holy shit holy fuck in this conversation you can still exist i I just don't i want to see you i know that and you're right joe i think that the reason what we're really reacting to here it seems to me is is the weakness of the blog post right yeah if this guy was our friend and we were sitting and he was like hey i'm gonna leave the ministry and you responded with oh why and these were the reasons he gave you'd be like come on that can't be it yeah that yeah. just can't be it like like everything you've described is um on one hand exactly what every pastor on planet earth struggles with but figures out how to overcome yeah and on the other hand like you don't have it anywhere near as bad as other people. Like, I think you, you, you or I would probably say something like that. Like, what about all your money? What about living in Chicago? What, like, like, is that the stuff you want to, you're prepared to give up? Like, and for him, the answer is probably no, because he's already got a side gig. He's already knows what he's doing. He already, he already knows that, that, you know, he's, he's making money off of books or public speaking or whatever next thing he's going to do. And and eventually we would get to the bottom of it. And and I really believe that it has something to do, Joe, with these passages about abuse and mudslinging and stuff like that. I still think that the most telling sentence in the whole thing is the reason he told the congregation why he has to leave. Right. I no longer desire to be at the pastorate anymore because I'm exhausted from writing, memorizing, and preaching sermons week after week for 10 years. And as far as the congregation is aware, according to this blog post, that's what they know. And so I have to assume he just doesn't want to fucking do it anymore. Yeah. Do you know what really leads credence to that, that I just learned, is that there was an associate pastor there who had more than 30 years of ministry who retired earlier this year. So Mm. anything that he's saying about how hard this job is, my dude, you had the perfect backup for you. And I'm sorry that you couldn't trust her with things because it looks like she was a woman. But, But no, like there must be something else going on because there is just no way that these complaints land if you have the a broad support system that it looks like he had. Right. We have a thousand members on the rolls. We have about 500 to attend service. And I was thrilled to see that 360 people were at my last sermon. Interesting. Yeah. All three of those things are true. Yeah. Okay. We have unrealistic expectations. The average salary is 55000 for PCUSA pastors, and that's not near enough. No, I won't say what I'm making. Right. How do you not lead off with that? <laughs> or not lead off, but like at some point say, say, I am so thankful that I have had that my congregation has the ability to pay me well above more than twice what the minimum, the average salary is, which by the way, the average salary in his area is 52K a year, not for pastors, but just in general. So like he's making more than twice what his congregants are making. Do not include anything about income in anything that you say. Or, or like here's another really great example, right? 
I can relate when he lists the four, the f- top five reasons for why pastors leave, according to this survey. He he says flat out, I can relate to all of these, but in particular, the top two are the ones that figured heavily into my decision. So, okay, so even though he can relate to all of them, it, it's not that he's not optimistic about the future of his church. It's not that he's unhappy with the role that he uh, that this has had on his family. It's not really that he's worried about current political divisions, even though he has an entire section describing a pastor who whose apparently entire problem came down to that. He is worried because the job is stressful and he feels lonely and isolated. The job is indeed stressful. He has not described lonely and isolated. Not at all. On, on anything. He gets to go on sabbatical. He has a family. He has positive. He's made lots of friends at the church. He has personally connected with 300 of uh, congregants. He, he is an incredible public speaker. He has started a new movement. He has a blog. He's written some books. In what way is this guy lonely and isolated? Yeah. Yeah. I, like, again, drop him in my context. You know, in the middle of the mountains of Western North Carolina with people who do not trust you unless you sound like them, people who who do not trust people who have lived there for decades. Right. Unless you're from there and then drop you as a single female pastor in a world that does not want you to be there. I I just don't understand. I don't understand how this man has the gall to write something like this. As if, and to write it as if there have not been others who have been talking about this for years. None of the, you're right, Joe, not, but none of those people are joining Restorative Faith. That you're, when you said that this is an article for that, yeah. uh, you, I, think, I think you're completely right. When you pointed out the language that most Christians don't want to be put, challenged, you know, their thoughts and beliefs to be challenged. Uh, and you said this is something that people who do not know Christians would believe, uh, and especially people who would be susceptible to wanting to join restorative faith. Yeah. So that they can feel like the group that asks all the questions and can take all the questions, even when we're dealing with a a uh, collection of uh, we're dealing with three points of thought that are some of the weakest and thinnest ways of thinking I've ever seen. Yeah. And you know what logical fallacy that is just really glaring when you start to think about any of this is he's making all these claims about Christians based on his experience in the Presbyterian church. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Presbyterians are not the majority of Christians. No, not at all. That's the other thing. What what is what is he talking about? He's not he's also at PC USA. That's why that's why I keep saying this is very obviously a a, a liberal congregation. You know, like like and and they let him do his bullshit for 10 years. Yeah. God. Yeah, that's my analysis, Joe. My analysis of this whole thing, other than grow a pair and, and you know, do the stuff correctly. Because that's the other thing. Listeners, we talk about this job as a job, 
And, and I do that, we do that for a lot of reasons. This is a really great example of why we do that. This is not a mystery. Correct. Right. How, how do I be a good pastor? How do you be a good pastor is a different question that I'm not, I'm not interested in answering for this guy. But the question, how do I sustain myself in this job? That is not a mysterious question. It's easy yeah. to explain. And you know what? This is why it's a grift. He's done it. He knows how to sustain himself in this job. He has done it. Because you don't make it. it 10 years without you knowing how to do it. You don't make it to exactly. And so everything, this is why I have to assume that just about everything on this blog post is a lie, except for all that strange talk of mudslinging and abuse. Yeah. Which I am quite sure is true. It's just probably doesn't look like that. Every and everything else is too general, Joe. The yeah. average salary, the average reasons, the average expectancy, the average stuff. It's it's just all too general. Give me the concrete example of when you, your brain was just too heavy laden by the stories of your congregation and you just couldn't do it. Give me that example. Give me the concrete example of when the church is when of when your congregation's unrealistic expectations caused you to snap. Yeah. You can't. Because none of that happened. Because your entire career there, you had a dedicated associate pastor. You went on sabbaticals. You wrote books. And you started this heretical, theistic um, <laughs> enlightenment group. Yeah. 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 I, oh, gosh. And if he does not, if it's not a conscious grift, because there, there are, by whatever powers, there are people out there who do not consciously understand that what they're doing is exploiting others and they're white people and they do shit like this and they're across the church if it's not a conscious grift like let this be a sign to you my friend repent believe the good news and change from your ways (laughs) like you can at this moment say you know what this whole restorative faith thing i i might not be the person to lead this at this time so thank you all for your support i need to go work a real fucking job for 10 goddamn minutes because it's clear that he was not doing the job of being pastor through the whole time here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <sighs> I, and I agree. And, and, and here's maybe my last kind of thought on, on this, on this phenomenon of, of leaving. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to leave the church completely for real, there would certainly be theological and spiritual reasons why yeah. I would do it. And there would certainly be practical reasons, and some of them might be similar to what he's saying. The job really does suck. It's not fun being the CEO of a failing nonprofit. Who gets yelled at all the time. Like, I get it. Yeah, yeah. It's not a great time. And then having to deal with your bosses who, because of their job, have to pretend like it's fine, uh, you know, in order to get you to turn in your charge conference paperwork. Like, like the, I, it's not a fun time uh, for this job. There are parts of it that I like, but it's not a fun time for this job. So if I were to leave, there'd be some, there'd be concrete reasons that are like this as well. The primary reason why I would leave 
is because I just want to do something else. Right. Right. You know, And then say that. Say that. That's all I'm saying. Yep. It's not hard. You don't have to lie. You don't have to you don't have to pretend. You don't have to come up with excuses. You don't even have to do what this guy did and and talk through, you know, all of the bullshit. You could just be like, "Hey, I I want to do something different." But once again, this guy doesn't want to do something different. He wants right. to do the same stuff he's always been doing, but without with those pesky with less oversight, without all those pesky people. Yeah. Because he reveals, he gives away. That's that's the be- to me that's the best way to describe this this uh, blog post. He attempts to be deceptive, but he gives away the game at every point. I don't want to care about people. I don't want yeah. to treat people with grace and forgiveness. I don't want to be there for their funerals and their baptisms. Right. Fine. Fine. Just fucking admit it. Yeah. 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 You don't have to want to do those things, but you do if you want to be a pastor. Yeah. And it sounds like you don't want to be a pastor and maybe never did. And maybe you never did. I think my parting words for for former Reverend Lang is uh, probably don't publish any more of your poetry online. No, no, <laughs> no, Alex, don't do it. All right, okay. friends, friends, thanks for listening. This has been a mini story. What the hell's a pastor? We are Spanks Reebok and the Dude. <laughs> we will see you next time. <laughs> What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schomolf, performed by Joe Schomolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Find us across the internet at WTHIAP, or visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon, merch, and some other stuff. Thanks for listening. And remember, friends, Ethan gave me all the money in his wallet.